The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect Black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a Black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to the10thcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with David Dylan Thomas. David is the author of Design for Cognitive Bias, creator and host of the Cognitive Bias podcast, and a 20-year practitioner of content strategy and UX. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is David Dylan Thomas. I am an author and a speaker. My day job really is to just go around and get people excited about and give them better tools for more inclusive design. And I do that from talks and workshops that I give at conferences, organizations, what have you. How's uh, the year been going for you so far? Busy. I've been doing a lot of traveling. It's like I'm making up for like years of growing up without travel and then the most recent, (laughs) you know, three years of no travel because of COVID. So I've been to Stockholm, Denmark, Japan. And then last fall, I was in Berlin and just Seattle and all these other places. So it's been really fun, but exhausting. Wow. So you've been making up for lost time. Exactly. Yeah. And it it is this very much like growing up, I did not make a lot of money or my, my, my family didn't have a lot of money. So like the idea of travel was just totally out of reach. And now it's the exact opposite end of the spectrum where I'm like, you know, world traveler and it's, I love it, but yeah, it's a lot. Living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of all this travel, like, do you have anything that's uh, planned for the summer? So yeah, I it, it's not slowing down really. So I'm going to be at UX London in a few weeks. I'm going to visit some friends in San Francisco in a few weeks. I'm hitting up a gig in Tampa, family vacation to Montreal. So it's it's staying pretty busy. I might get a break in August. I'm not sure yet, but <laughs> it's all good. But yeah, there's still more to come. Wow. I mean, you've got a stacked year so far. That's pretty good. 
Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I hate the act of travel, like air travel. I despise. I, mm-hmm. I love it, but like I love being places. I just hate getting there. So that's <laughs> the other exhausting part is the, uh, the actual act of air travel. I'm not a big fan. I know the feeling all too well. Like I, I went to Toronto back in October last year, and it was my first. My first time traveling since before the pandemic, at least air travel before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was kind of dreading it a little bit, to be honest. I was like, I had been seeing stuff on the news about people fighting in airports and on the plane mm-hmm. and stuff. And I was like, and I'm in Atlanta. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to do, I mean, I wasn't flying spirit or anything, but I was like, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to go to the airport. And it's like a whole thing, you know, yeah. like, I just want to get to where I have to go without incident. And it was fine, but I was kind of a bit worried leading up to it but i'm trying to get my sea legs back with travel because i used to travel a lot like pre-pandemic for work and for the show and i'm trying to like ease back into it now yeah i'm fully on board at this point i've been i think i've traveled more post-pandemic than i ever did (laughs) pre-pandemic wow (laughs) so what lessons did you learn like this past year like how would you say you've grown and improved i've learned what my, or I'm starting to learn, I'm beginning to learn what my boundaries are, because as much as I enjoy the travel, there's a psychological hit, a social hit, there's a family hit, there's an economic hit, to be frank. What I'm learning, I won't say I've learned it yet, but what I'm learning is balance and trying to figure out, okay, what am I comfortable saying no to? Because I'm in the privileged position of having enough things going on and having enough financial stability to be able to say no. Mm-hmm. So where does it make sense to say no? Where does it make sense to say yes? So like an example would be like Japan is a very expensive trip. And, you know, I was paid for my time there, but it's always going to be more cost effective to do something, you know, online. So it's sort of one of those I've never been. I love it so much. I'm willing to take a bit of a financial hit on that or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's figuring out how much of that before it becomes a burden, that kind of thing. So I would say balance or that that's what I'm endeavoring to learn in, in this past year is what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And now I would say like outside of the like travel realm, like is there anything in particular that you're you're learning about now? My new hotness is really grappling with ownership. I mean, I'm finding that my talks, my work is drifting pretty rapidly into the political. So I talk about design, I talk about UX and content strategy, but increasingly the stakes, right? The the things I'm talking about are things like Facebook's impact in Myanmar, right? So these are quickly becoming very political topics. Mm-hmm. And the stuff I'm reading, I'm reading currently reading Sweetgrass, and there's a lot in there that's really challenging me around ownership, like the idea of ownership. And like, where is it appropriate? And where is it problematic, actually? Where is it actually doing more harm than good to have these very strict notions of ownership? So a, a basic example would be if you Think about colonial perspectives on Native Americans and taking the land from them. That presumes that Native Americans, you know, uniformly believed the land belonged to them, when in fact many Native American cultures didn't believe in ownership at all. Mm-hmm. Right? It was sort of like, hey, those aren't your strawberries or mine strawberries. They belong to themselves. And, you know, that's it. Like, you know, we don't own things in that sense. 
So really, if you were going to do like a reset, for example, to say, okay, what would reparations look like in the context of Native American land? One version of that would actually be not giving the land back, but actually abolishing ownership of land, which I think is a far more controversial, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, concept than just saying, oh, we're just going to give all the land back. Like that's that's hard enough. But to say, oh, we're not giving the land back. We're just saying no one's going to own any land. I think that would freak people out way more. So that's the kind of stuff that's really got me excited and challenged in terms of what I'm learning about right now. I mean, especially in this country. I mean, manifest yeah. destiny and everything. You you talk about seeding ownership and people get hot. Oh. <laughs> that is a that is a hot potato to deal with. Yeah, that is the uh, y'all ain't ready for this conversation meme. That's the- <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk, I guess, a little bit more about the work that you're doing. I saw, you know, just recently that you spoke in Denmark mm-hmm. at uh, at UX Copenhagen. How was that? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, Copenhagen is nice, and it's one of those conferences where the talks are great. But what's really awesome is just the people, the conversations you have in between talks, at dinner after. Uh, and Copenhagen is a great, a great place to have those conversations. And Hella Martins, who runs it, is so kind and so thoughtful, and is a great host. Not just hosting the conference, but hosting her guests, her speakers at the conference, like everyone involved. What I remember most, though, about uh, UX Copenhagen is really just the great conversations and the people I met there, which is, to me, like the highest value of any conference is not the talks, although I enjoy the talks, it's the people. It's getting to meet new people, getting to reestablish old relationships. And UX Copenhagen was great for that this year. Had you done that conference before? So yeah, that talk is actually historic for me. So the book Design for Cognitive Bias comes from a talk called Design for Cognitive Bias. And the first time I ever gave that talk was at UX Copenhagen in 2018, which was also my first international conference. So she invited me based on a podcast I did with Saskia Vittler. She was like, oh, it sounds like you're doing really cool stuff. Can you come to my conference and talk about cognitive bias in the context of like UX and content strategy? I'm like... Yeah, I can. You know, and I put together that talk and putting it together was really where I found what I believe to be like the spine of the book, even before I knew it was going to be a book, which is really this notion of not just, hey, here are these biases that our users have, but hey, here are these biases that we as designers have. And so really, this isn't a talk about bias. This is a talk about ethics. And when I figured that out, Mm. like I unlocked that, that became what the talk was, what the book was. But all that started at that first UX Copenhagen I went to in 2018. Nice. So this was kind of like a good return to form in a way. Yeah, it was kind of a homecoming. Yeah. Yeah. And now speaking of talks, you have a new talk that you're doing now. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Sure. So this is a <laughs> this is a massive talk that I've been working on for a while. And it all started once. I don't know what it was, but some social media company did something terrible. And there's way too many examples of that for me to remember which one it was. But it, I got mad and I posted something like, I swear to God, my next talk is going to be called no seriously f engagement except i didn't say f i said the actual word yeah and you can you can say fuck here that's fine oh okay so no seriously <laughs> fuck engagement and and of course people were like oh yeah you should give that talk and it was kind of a joke but then i was supposed to give the closing keynote in an event apart which ended up being the final in event apart in san francisco and i needed a new talk cuz i'd already given all of my other talks and we kind of went back and forth and i said look my new talk it's like super anti-capitalist. Are you sure you want me to do this? And they're like, as long as you have like actual positive advice and it's not just a rant, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I've got great, great advice or challenges that I want to kind of put out there. Yeah. So the talk ends up being 
based on a quote from Martin Luther King, which says, we must rapidly move from a thing-based society to a person-based society, or thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. And this is something you said like you know, 50, 60 years ago. And I basically start off by saying, okay, if we agree that's a good idea, what is our role as designers, makers of things, whatever, in that shift? And I start by saying, basically, this is what a thing-oriented web looks like. And I talk about things like Facebook and engagement and how the obsession with engagement can lead to things like genocide in Myanmar, where they let lots of hate speech just sit up there because, frankly, hate speech is good for their bottom line. It increases engagement. So I sort of paint that portrait. And then I say, okay, what would a person-oriented web look like? And for that, I look to things like the Siksika and the Wendat, who were are Native American tribes that have different perspectives on just fundamental assumptions about humanity, right? Basically that, hey, maybe you're born having value and I don't need you to have a lot of money for me to consider you having value. You know what I mean? And so what happens if we take those assumptions and build the web, web based on that? And I can mm. point to a couple different instances where people are kind of experimenting with that. But the whole point of the talk is we don't have that web. How do we build it? And the really, it's more of just like a challenge, almost like a design brief, right, for the audience to say, okay, if we were to make these other assumptions about people and about how we should interact, what would we build, right? How would we build differently? And let's go do that. So it's the first time I've really given a talk that's more of just a challenge for something that doesn't exist yet, as opposed to saying, hey, here's all this evidence from science about these methods you can use to make your stuff more inclusive. Like, I love that, but I am like the thing that I'm really into now is this notion of, okay, what's the next step? Yeah. I like that the talk is sort of putting the onus on the listener, the audience, whomever, to kind of come up with what the solution is. Like you're pointing out the issue. You're not giving necessarily a solution, but you're saying mm -hmm. these are the things that you need to think about so we can come to a solution. Yeah, it's really challenging the audience to listen to themselves, frankly, because a big chunk of the talk, I get very personal. I go into therapy that I've been through. I go into like how I found value in literally writing down my values and mm -hmm. trying to proceed from there. So the only like tangible like advice I give the audience ends up really being around, hey, after this talk is over, I want you to go home and write down your values and ask yourself, is your work taking you closer to or further away from that? And if it is getting you further away, well, what can you do to get closer? Like that to me is the beginning of that journey. So it gets very personal too. You know, I did a talk, it was 2020, maybe 2021, but I did a talk called content is subject to change. Mm. And I had sort of come up with, I guess I won't say I come up, came up with the idea on a whim, but I was talking about how content on the web is in this sort of state where nothing is really being sufficiently archived because mm. the internet and the web itself was never meant to be a tool for archive. It was a tool for research. Mm -hmm. Like it came out of research institutions and how like the early web, the quote unquote web 1.0 was really about research and discovery. And then, of course, Web 2.0 sort of ushered in user-generated content. And we're sort of in the throes of, I don't know, I guess we're sort of limping into Web 3 with, <laughs> with the way companies have been approaching the metaverse and such. But the reality is that users create and put so much content on the web. I mean, tweets, Instagram posts, photos, videos, etc., and like, none of that is really stored anywhere, mm -hmm. not in a, in a very active way. Like you can look at, or you can try to find articles from 10 years ago and all the links are broken. None of the images work. <laughs> if you yeah. can find the actual article at all, people point to the internet archive, but like they're just a small nonprofit. They can't archive everything. They can't even archive things in certain countries. They can't archive flash 
I mean, Flash was everywhere. Now Flash is, is a relic. And all that stuff that was created with Flash is just like dust in the wind, essentially. I, I have an interview with Jack Dorsey that is oh, wow. to Flash. <laughs> and it's and it's a, and it's such a tragedy because one of the questions I asked him is what makes you pessimistic about the web? This is like 2008 or something. What mm-hmm. makes you pessimistic about the web? And what he said was, I think it's going to be hard to prove what is true. Yeah. Like, oh my god, <laughs> like, to not be able to just post that online every single time something blows up. Like, oh my god. But yeah, yeah. And I mean, even to what you were mentioning there with like what Jack said, like. Look at now with deep fakes and AI yeah. and mid journey and, and all sorts of stuff. Like what is real? Like I'll see images on, you know, Twitter or wherever. And it's like, wait, I think that's real. That might be real. <laughs> like it's sort of is falling into that sort of uncanny valley, especially as the technology uh, gets better. But I say all this to say, I like the fact that you're giving sort of a design talk. That's not specifically about. I guess, digital design, but more so the concept of design and how that relates to like what we go through in society. Well, yeah. And truth be told, it's a political talk. Like I don't market it as such because I'm giving it at design conferences, although I did give it at a journalistic conference once, mm-hmm. but it's a political talk because yeah. the things I'm, the things I'm talking about, the things I'm recommending are for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like this is at the societal level. I mean, and it's what King was talking about. King was talking what he, about what he was talking about, not for designers, not for politicians, but for everyone. Yeah. Right. He wanted everyone to be involved in this shift and he saw the need for it. So I'm like, I'm speaking to designers for the most part, just because of the milieu in which I work, mm-hmm. but I'd be happy to give this, you know, in Congress, in, you know, civil activist organizations, in churches, in just stand on the street corner and yell it, you know, like, <laughs> like this is something I believe in and, and that I think is applicable at a very, very universal level. Yeah. And I think certainly like as technology increases and as we start to I mean, AI is pretty much already being used now by companies in a bunch of different things. And not to say that AI is like the scapegoat or the catalyst for for mm-hmm. the talk that you're giving, but it's important that more people outside of our profession know about this. Like mm-hmm. they know that this is sort of uh I had to I had to say it like it's sort of a condition of the world that we live in now. It's like this is a thing that we have to contend with and it doesn't just have to deal with tech or just have to deal with design. This is like a human problem. Yeah, and and the thing I try to get across in the talk, and in my work in general, is it's just a tool, right? Yeah. I mean, the same database that was used to hunt down people for their medical debt, right? It's like, hey, you got cancer, but guess what? I don't care. You have to pay these bills, right? That comes from a database, and hospitals, you know, uh, people go and buy that debt. So these two guys who were running one of those companies that had those databases sort of had a moment of truth when Occupy happened and they flipped it and said, okay, now we're going to use the exact same database, right? To find people who owe medical debt and then forgive it. Mm -hmm. We're going to use the exact same financial mechanism of buying that debt from hospitals for pennies on the dollar and then forgive that debt. And they've forgiven something like $6 billion of medical debt that way. Exact same tool, exact same database, exact same, like, I don't know if AI was in there or not, but let's say, yeah, why not? Because AI is in everything. But it's like, that's a very, very old story. There are examples going back to like indigenous Peruvians who were doing similar things with taking the same tool for different purposes. Mm-hmm. So this is so so when I see AI, yes, it's scary. And yes, it's doing all sorts of mischievous stuff, but it is the exact same story. It depends what you want to do with it. 
And you can use it for great good or you can use it for great harm. And the reason, you know, sort of like I said, that it's good that you're giving this talk or you want to give this talk sort of outside of our our industry is that more people need to be aware of sort of the consequences of these things or why it's sort of something that we're bringing up as a point. Like AI has really blown up to mainstream, at least to the point where like the media is really talking about it outside of specialty outlets. Mm-hmm. It's blown up over the past nine months where now the creators of this stuff are testifying before Congress about what are the best ways to curtail this or to to use this or something like that. So it's important that these are issues that we talk about now before they sort of spin out of control. Yeah, and I think that what I want people to do is to not focus on the tool so much as the players behind the tool. There's a great PBS Digital Studios channel that that uh, show. It's not around anymore, but it was called Idea. Idea oh, Idea Channel with Idea uh, Channel. Mike Rugnetta, yeah. Yeah, freaking love that. And one of the episodes, at some point, they're like, hey, we're, we're instituting this new policy on our show where when we talk about a new technology, we are not going to embody it, which is to say we're not going to say AI is doing this or AI is doing that. We're going to say people are doing this with AI. People are doing this with ChatGPT, whatever that technology is, because we don't want to give the impression that technology is embodied, that it is this its own thing. No, human beings are using a thing to do a thing. I feel like we need to keep our eye on that because if we point people and get hysteria around a particular technology, we sort of draw their attention away from the people because the people are the thing you need to be losing your mind about, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Elon Musk firing all the content moderators is the thing you need to be worried about, not Twitter per se. Or yeah. I said on a, a panel earlier about ChatGPT and content, people freaking out, oh, ChatGPT is going to take my job. And I'm like, trust me, you do not need to be afraid of ChatGPT. You need to be afraid of shareholders. Mm-hmm. Shareholders are going to take your job hella faster than ChatGPT. Shareholders have been taking people out a thousand employees at a time for the past two years. They're the ones, but we're not having this panic over shareholders. So yeah, I'm like, AI, great. It's interesting, but the big story isn't AI. The big story is who's using it for what. The who is the, is the big story. Yeah. Now, I first heard about you from your book, Design for Cognitive Bias, which you mentioned earlier. For those who might not have heard about it, one, will include a link to it in the show notes so you can pick it up. But can you tell us a bit about the book? Sure. So the basic premise is that we have biases, our users have biases, our stakeholders have biases. And when I say bias, I just mean your mind has to take shortcuts just to get through the day. You have to make something like a trillion decisions a day. Right now, I'm making decisions about how fast to talk, what to do with my hands. If I thought carefully about every single one of those decisions, I'd never get anything done. But it's so, so it's actually a good thing that a lot of our decisions are made on autopilot. But sometimes the autopilot gets it wrong. And so the book is really, and we call those those errors biases. So the, really, the book is saying, okay, if we accept that bias is going to be with us, what do we do at the user level? What are some biases we can design uh, our products in a way to either mitigate or maybe even use for good. And how does that also play with stakeholders? How do we sort of use persuasion techniques to sort of leverage biases they might have to steer our organizations in maybe more inclusive directions? But then really, I think the most important part is our biases. Like how do we keep our biases from causing our users harm. So all of that is in 92 quick little pages you can read. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like that's the spine of the book is this journey from our users' biases, our stakeholders' biases, and then our biases. And all the way through, I give these very concrete examples and concrete methods to try to work with that. Yeah. 
I love that the book really emphasizes the importance of recognizing and understanding them because that's sort of the first step to fixing them or to create in spite of them, I suppose, you know, to make more effective and inclusive work, to strive for DEI. Because oftentimes, you know, these things are brought up only in a sort of DEI context, Mm -hmm. which I think gives some people, some people, gives some people permission to not think about it at all because they're like, well, I don't fall within the, you know, I don't know, BIPOC spectrum or whatever. Why should I have to think about this? You know? Yeah. Which is actually the number one reason you should have to think about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, right. If you, know, you know. But no, and then the thing is, like, yes, when people think of bias, one of the main things they think about is race or gender, which absolutely they should, like mm-hmm. two of the most harmful biases out there. But it's even things like, hey, stuff that rhymes is more believable. So if you're making something rhyme, you better make sure it's true, right? It's things like mm-hmm. that that are, you know, are both within and without the realm of race or gender. Yeah, it is important at a global level to understand how these things work. You know, that's even something that I think about, honestly, with this show. I think about it in the context of podcasts in general. I remember, I think I saw some study, it was either from Pew or from maybe Edison or something like that. But they were talking about how most people believe, I think it was like 80-something percent of podcast listeners sort of get their news from podcasts. Like that's what they believe over, say, mainstream media, Mm -hmm. which is really dangerous because anyone (laughs) can put out a podcast just because you say some shit on a microphone does not necessarily make it true. And so I think about that even in the context of the show, like I've done over 500 episodes, I try to get as varied a swath of people as I can to talk about a universal experience, which is being a black designer or a black digital creator or whatever. And that is broken down across gender, sexual orientation, gender presentation. It's broken down across so many different things, age, geography, industry. And I try to do that to not sort of introduce what I think people may already look at. Like mm-hmm. they may look at all the people that I've interviewed and say like, oh, you just talked to a bunch of black people. It's all the same. <laughs> it's not the same. It has changed drastically over the years. We talk about a lot of different topics. It varies. Every person's conversation is different because every person is different. So yeah. I understand kind of that that need to to recognize the bias so you can work against it. Yeah. And by the way, are people like out there be like, oh, you talk just don't, you just talk to a bunch of black people. I'd be like, have you met black people? We don't agree. <laughs> That's the last time you hung out with more than five black people and they'll agree. Are you, are you kidding with this? Like the last time you sat in a barbershop for more than five minutes. Yeah. Right? We agree? What? <laughs> yeah. Have you met black people? That's funny. That's a t-shirt right there. That's funny. I like that. <laughs> so with, with everything that you're doing, like what does a, a typical day look like for David Dylan Thomas? No such thing. So, well, okay, two such things, right? So one is the travel Dave where I am on a plane and I'm getting up in some new city and like doing this weird mix of touristy stuff and like my job. (laughs) So those days look like this weird mix of I'm going to go check out this castle or this museum and then I'm going to go rehearse. It's very much like touring, like a comedian or a band. Like you go and you do the thing, but you also try to like have a good life at the same time, or you meet people in town that live in that town that you know Mm -hmm. from the web or something. So that's like travel Dave. And then there's like home Dave, which is 
I don't do a schedule in the sense of at 9 a.m. I do this, at 10 a.m. I do that. But I do have like a Trello where, where I just have my priorities. And so it's like the first few things I'm going to do is try to have I, – I like to wake up slowly. So I have a nice breakfast, watch some TV, maybe play some video games, maybe do some reading. Then I'll get into things like household chores like laundry or uh, trash or maybe help with the dishes right, and cleaning. Then I might get more into things like, okay, let's check some emails. Let's go through all of that stuff. And so that's more of like depending on the how the day comes out because I might have a meeting. I might have this, that. That's sort of fixed. Everything else that's kind of liquid time that I can kind of play with is sort of like, okay, this is the next thing on the Trello that I want to get to. And some days I'll get through maybe laundry and the day's over because there's just too much other stuff going mm-hmm. on. Uh, other days I'll be like, I actually got all, through all 500 emails. My God, how did that happen? Right. So that's a little more fluid. And it's what I've learned over time works best for me, both from an anxiety perspective, but also from just a functional perspective, because I have the luxury of having a job where with very few uh, exceptions, my time is my own. I can choose how to spend my, I, I'm not required to be in a certain place at a certain time with very few exceptions. Like, okay, I have to be in that place giving that talk at that time. So that's one hour that is hundred percent accounted for. But mm-hmm. for the rest of it, it's like, you could be doing dishes. You could be meditating. You could be playing with your son. Like any of those are options that are just as equally valid. I don't have a boss saying, Hey, why aren't you doing this right now? Mm, yeah. I think with any sort of entrepreneur, like that's the challenging thing is balancing it, managing your time and still getting stuff done within the midst of all of that. Yeah. And I'd say that's my biggest challenge over the past year is really now that I, it really is much more fluid, making sure that I'm not over optimizing for gigs, right? That I'm really making time to be there for my wife, to be there for my son, you know, to, to be there for my family. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And excuse me, and kind of give that it's due weight and it's due context. Cause it's really easy to fall into the trap of, I found it to fall into the trap of like making everything like a checklist Mm-hmm. of like duties mm-hmm. rather than look at the team effort of we're a family and we have these shared goals and we're each chipping in to work on those goals. And yes, an easy way to get closer to that is to have this sort of list of to do's, but there's also times to be flexible. There's also times to like see a need and just work on it. Yeah. Right? That's hard for me because like I am a very list oriented person. So that's sort of what I've been working on is how to be more present, frankly, for my yeah. family. That's the new hotness. <laughs> same, same. Like right now, I was just talking to my mom recently because, you know, Mother's Day just passed. Her and I were talking and she's telling me like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking of a uh, I'm finally thinking about moving. She lives in, in Alabama. We're from Selma, Alabama. And you know, I grew up there, moved out when I was 18. I've been here in Atlanta ever since. She's lived there her whole life. Now she's talking about moving to Dallas. Mm-hmm. And the first thing in my mind was like, I'm about to project manage the shit out of this yeah. move because one, I'm like, I have been waiting for you to leave this town forever. And you are finally going to do it. We are making this happen. But like, it's also about being in the moment of like why she wants to do it now. Like she's, she's been retired for, let's see, she retired at 62. She's been retired for eight years now. She mm-hmm. just turned 70. I'm like, now you want to move? But sure. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Let's do it. Let's try to make it happen. So I have to resist my urge to try to really plan this and make sure this goes off without a hitch, but also mm-hmm. make sure that I'm present for like 
her feelings behind moving because I mean, she grew up there just like I did, but she's just lived there now her whole life. And now she's like, it's time to get out of here. I'm like, okay, let's make it happen. Just for a second. Can we just talk about the South? Cause sure. Man born quote unquote in the North. I was born in Maryland, which is technically the South. Okay. And is the South in a lot of ways. Like (laughs) I grew up with this fear of the South. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I see, like when I think of the South, I think of like Mississippi burning, right? Like that's like, <laughs> okay. At the same time, right? I've been to the South a lot of times. I never really had any problems. And that's where like 80% of us are like black folk live in the South. That's yeah. where we are. Yeah. And I, and I talk to people who have lived there their whole lives or, or who lived in the North and are anxious to move to the South. And I'm just like trying to get my head. So like, I don't even know what my question is, but it's just sort of like when I hear like, oh, She's moving from uh, Alabama. I get that to Dallas. Oh, that's yeah. Texas isn't awesome right now, but okay. <laughs> you know? Well, look, like, her other choice was Florida. And I was like, well, that's definitely ooh, not happening. Ooh. So <laughs> yeah, ah. no, Dallas is better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been to Dallas. It's better than all of Florida. <laughs> yeah. Like the entire state. Oh my God. So yeah, yeah it, was, it was either Florida. It was either Florida or Texas. And I'm like, and even talking to her about it, I think the, honestly, the main reason she wants to move is because her brother lives there. So her older oh, okay. brother yeah, 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 lives yeah. there with his family and he is extremely well off. So it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. well, if you move there, if you move in with him or even in the vicinity of where he is, like at least you're together, it's family. The main thing I'm excited about is that she'll be in a city that is served by a major airport because mm. I don't drive and I don't have a car. So me trying to get from Atlanta to Selma takes Mm. like a bus, a pack mule. I probably have to hitchhike part of the way. Like it's not easy to get back home. And I was like, heaven forbid there's an emergency and I can't get to you quickly. If you're at least, you know, in a city served by an airport, I can hop on a plane and take a Uber or a Lyft to get to where you are. Like, that's not a problem, you know? Um, But yeah, it was either Texas or Florida. And I was like, well, it's not Florida. So Texas it is. (laughs) Yeah, and I've been to Dallas. I actually, I actually like Dallas a lot, but yeah. yeah, it's just, it's just this. I don't know how many black people hold this special relationship with the South or hold. I feel like black people just have a feeling. It may not be the same feeling, but have a feeling about the South. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's just endlessly flat, fascinating to me. I'm curious, like, what's the fascinating part? Well, it's just like. I think I grew up with this myth in my head that once you hit the South, it's all clan. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, and so like, like how can you live there? Like I do, I get genuinely surprised. Like I had, yeah. uh, I have a brother who was living in Maryland and was like, Oh yeah, I want to move further South or I'll meet someone else. Who's sort of like, yeah, I was living in San Francisco, but I want to move back to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, on the one hand, I kind of get it. It's again, it's one of those things I'm learning more about now. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm like, yeah, but, you know about the South, right? You know, right, right. And I think the part that's fascinating to me is that as I interrogate that, there's no real evidence that the South is any safer or more dangerous, right? If I think about all the shootings that have happened of Black people, they're all over. They're not yeah. just in the South. There's plenty in the North, right? Yeah. But I do think I don't know. It's me dealing with my own fear of white supremacy. And when I think of white supremacy, I associate it far more with the South than I do with the North, even though there's plenty of it in the North. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak on the South because, I mean, I grew up here. I've lived here all my life. Like, I do know that there is that perception, certainly because I have cousins that live in the North. Like, most of my mom's side of the family is in Detroit. My dad's side of the family is in Cleveland. And like, they've always kind of treated us as like the country cousins, you know, like mm-hmm. what is, you know, for whatever that means. But I think there is that perception. And granted, I mean, I grew up in Selma, 
which right. is a which is <laughs> which I mean I think now certainly within the past maybe like 10 to 15 years has started to become something that's in the regular zeitgeist because presidential candidates go there and there was a movie about it and all this stuff. I can tell you when I first came to Atlanta in 99 from Selma, people thought that I meant Salem, Oregon because they had never heard of it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which is weird because like you grew up when you grow up in Selma, you are not divorced from the history of the civil rights movement at all. Right. It is present. It is not just something that you learn about. It is everywhere. You are a byproduct of it. Like I'm the first generation outside of Bloody Sunday. Like it's Mm. everywhere. Like I remember, oh God, was this fourth grade, fifth grade? Um, When did I have my social studies teacher? I think this was fourth grade. My social study teacher, Mrs. Mance had like shown me, Shit. Well, it was like a field trip. She had shown us like a spot downtown where her blood was spilled because she got hit by a police officer 20 something years ago. You're never divorced from it. It's always around you. And even growing up in Selma, I mean, I'm I'm using Selma as kind of a bit of an outlier here, but like you are fully aware of the gravity of racism and the civil rights movement and all that sort of stuff, because you're just you're in it. You know don't go to this part of town after a certain time. Don't go to this grocery store. You just know that, right? And then even as politics change and you see how people change because of politics, and Selma is another good example of this, like we had a racist white mayor from Martin Luther King Jr. times, like the 60s up until he died right around 2000, Joe Smitherman. Like he famously called Martin Luther King, Martin Luther Coon. Like, Mm. And like the fact that he still got elected year after year after year is strange in a city like Selma, particularly when black people are the majority. But he died. And so the city got its first black mayor. And many of the white citizens were so incensed by that that they closed businesses, moved roughly about five miles up Highway 22 and started their own city called Valley Grand. What? It sounds like something out of The Simpsons, you know, like. (laughs) This is why I'm afraid of the South. (laughs) But I mean, it's one of those things where like you are cognizant of it and aware of it. And you kind of just, I don't want to say you kind of just deal with it, but it's because you are aware of it. And it's such an ever present thing that you know how to navigate within it. So like when I left Selma and came to Atlanta, I mean, Came to Atlanta, went to Morehouse, the school that King, you know, graduated from Mm -hmm. and being in and around all that history and everything. It's like, you're just aware. You just know, like, this is the world you live in. I think sometimes when people think of HBCUs, there's this perception that like you're in a bubble in some ways and and, in ways you kind of are like you're in a bubble of being around only black people and and certain aspects of the diasporic African experience because it's not just African Americans that go to go to Morehouse, but And then you get out in the real world and you meet other people and you know that it's different. It's just hard for me to describe it, I think, in a way, because it's just something that's been ever present. You just know how to deal with it because you see it in so many different ways. I mean, just racism in general. Sometimes it's super overt. Sometimes it's covert. Like it's it's just always kind of like a thing that you recognize. It's a cognitive bias to put it <laughs> to kind right. of, I guess, bring it back to your book and everything. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just something that you know about, you're aware about. And because you know about it and you're aware about it, you know how to effectively work through it, work yeah. around it or work to include it in some way. Like, I mean, 
even what I do with this show and in the design industry is very interesting. We'll just put it that way. I would say my time growing up in the South and in, and in Selma and everything has taught me to deal with a lot of stuff that I deal with in terms of just discrimination from this show that it's just like, okay, I know that's going to be a thing. I can work around that. Right. I can deal with that. I can, you know, like I'm not going to let it stop me or bog me down or get me down in some way. It's just a, a general awareness of it to the point that I know this is a thing. I'm just going to have to kind of work through it, work around it to try to make it better or to try to circumvent it or something. You just, it's just always a thing that's present. You just know that it's always there. Like even you're mentioning like about the clan. I mean, Selma has a, has a clan hall. One of our housing projects is named after the former grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, Nathan what? Bedford Forrest. One of the, it's not an all white school, but it's, it's pretty much an all white school. One of the schools there is John T. Morgan, which is also named after a Klansman. Like it's a thing that you know about. Like even yeah. one of the cemeteries has like a Klan monument in it. You know that it's there. So you don't fuck with it. Like yeah. you don't, you yeah. don't deal with it. You know, like this is a thing not to deal with. So you just work around it. Or yeah. don't deal with it. All. It's kind of hard to to describe, but no, but yeah, no, I, I think it's true. And and what it reminds me of is I talked to a guy from Singapore, mm-hmm. and Singapore does not have free speech. Yeah, you talk shit about the president, you are you're not necessarily going to go to jail, but you're going to get sued into oblivion, mm-hmm. right? And I was asking him about it, and it was this thing where like. It was difficult for him to answer because it was sort of like asking a fish about water. It was just sort of like <laughs> you know it's there, you don't fuck with it. But you also don't necessarily – it wasn't really affecting his day-to-day, right? It wasn't like every morning he wakes up and thinks, oh, God, I wish I could say shit about the president. No, yeah. that's just not a thing. And I don't know. Like, it's interesting. But what you said make, makes perfect sense. Yeah. The, even the that sort of description you mentioned about, like, asking a fish about water, it, that's kind of just how it's it is. Like, sometimes things happen and you're like, well, that's just that's just how it is. You. Some of it is unfair. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that you just deal with everything and right. just sort of shrug your shoulders about it. But at least you are cognizant and aware of the fact that it is happening. You know why it's happening. You know the cause from which it stems. Like, it's not just like out of the blue. Like, you know, this is how people are. Like, I, I mean, I can give you another example. I like, will bring the interview back to you, but I know you asked about me. But, <laughs> that's cool. but I mean, like when I was graduating high school, my guidance counselor was doing everything in her power to not want me to go to college. Mm. She wanted the one white guy that was in our class, all black class, one white guy who happened to end up becoming valedictorian, but that's a whole other story, but was doing everything to get him into college, like giving him applications and, and all this sort of stuff. And then she'll turn to me and be like, well, why don't you think about learning a trade? Like you could go to the community college. I know that your mother works there. My husband works there. You could go there and learn a trade. Like people always need air conditioning. We live in the South. What about HVAC? And I'm like, ma'am, I have a 4.5 GPA. What are you talking about? (laughs) Are you daft? And I mean, this is also at the time when computers really started to be put into, you know, libraries and stuff like that. So I just did a lot of research on my own, but she was actively like not wanting me to go to college, like Mm. not helping with applications. She would give the guy's name was Gary. She would give him application vouchers for application fees and stuff. And then she would tell me about, you know, have you thought about welding? (laughs) Welding could be a good trade for you. Like, ma'am, I'm taking AP calculus. What are you talking about? (laughs) Welding. So it's just stuff that you deal with and you're like, whatever. Yeah. It's, that's a tough nut to crack, but (laughs) let's bring it back to you. Since we're talking about me, let's talk about 
your upbringing and your backstory. Uh-huh. So you're you're right outside of Philly right now in media. Is that where you're originally from? No. So I was born in Columbia, Maryland. It's the city that's basically right in between D.C. and Baltimore. And I grew up, so my mother and father split when I was very young. I didn't really get to meet him, get to know him until I was like 25 years old. Mm-hmm. That's very formative. And my mother was amazing. She really always made sure that we knew, like me and my sister, we knew we were loved and we knew that we could be whatever we wanted to be. Nothing could stop us. And she also really, really went to great pains to make sure we were educated. So for all of those things and much more, I'm always eternally grateful to her. She passed in 2011. So from a very young age, I was writing, I was reading at a young age, very smart, doing all the like the smart black kid things, right? <laughs> and uh, and having these sort of like, it's interesting, my earliest experiences of racism were actually coming from black kids who didn't mm. understand why I talked the way I do, <laughs> why I didn't talk black. And that mm-hmm. was, I think every black person has the story of when they realized they were black. That was it for me. It was like the way I was talking was different from the way the other black kids were talking. And weirdly, that's how I found out I was black because I wasn't talking the way I was supposed to, right? With the sort mm. of flat, not uh, African-American vernacular, we would call it now, right? Yeah. So that was also sort of an interesting wrinkle for me growing up. But I was always interested in filmmaking. I still do it today. And I you know, did it ever since high school. And that's the sort of content in my content strategy trajectory really comes from that storytelling aspect. So I went to friend school of Baltimore, very prestigious school. Again, my yeah. great pains to make sure I, I was able to get in there, went into debt for that, and then ditto for Johns Hopkins University, which I originally went for engineer, electrical engineering and then found out I was bad at that and switched to writing seminars <laughs> uh, and kind of got a concentration in theater and film. So I'm there. This is like now the mid-90s, and I'm armed with this like really solid – basically, I know how to think now that I've been through college. I know how to think and I know how to write. Mm-hmm. And for four years, I'm just working in a record store because if you remember in the mid nineties, there was the, like yet another recession slump. Nobody had any jobs. Yeah. So for four years, I worked in a record store, which is actually kind of fun. And I just worked on whenever independent movies came to town. Then after that, I finally got a job that more or less had to do with my major, which was being a online writing tutor for a, uh, for CTY center for talented youths, online writing courses for teens, basically giving junior high and high school students, these college level narrative nonfiction courses on CD-ROM. That's how long ago we're talking. And then they <laughs> go into an online forum to submit their work and do their um, workshopping, work- workshop those, those things. And that's when I really kind of fell in love with the web because what I was seeing the web do was take people, students who lived all over the world and might never meet each other in person and they get to talk about sports and homeschooling and all these other things, right? And that, that was amazing to me. Like that was just – and I, so the, the potential for the web to bring people together was where I really fell in love with it. And I've worked in tech in one form or another ever since. And now just to kind of give an idea like I'm trying to sort of place this within the context of history. I'm guessing this is roughly around like early 2000s? Yeah. So I worked at CTY from 2000 to around 2004. Okay. Yeah. The web was really, I mean, it's hard, I think, probably for people now to really know about this or think about it because, I mean, it's been 20 years, but the web back then was just exploding in terms of new experiences, new things to discover. I mean, the technology itself with browsers and such were growing at such a rapid pace. I mean, I think about that time so fondly. I mean, I was like in college right around the time I graduated in 03, but- Mm -hmm. That was such a magical time to be 
into the internet and the web because it, I mean, the, the big agents that are around now did not exist. And it's hard to think of an internet without social media, without Facebook, without Twitter. But I don't know. Maybe it's rose colored glasses. I don't know. I think about that time so fondly with just the web being a fairly idyllic place. I might be, I might be romanticizing it a bit. I don't, I don't think you are. So actually my new talk, I start out talking about personalization uh-huh. and how today it is almost impossible to find a website that doesn't have a login, right? Yeah. You go back to the early web, zero websites had a login. It was just this big art gallery like, mm-hmm. and you'd have things like Homestar Runner, which to this day has no login option. Like the Homestar <laughs> Runner you see is the Homestar Runner I see. But yeah. every other website, you see a different version that's personalized to you. And there are real psychological stakes for that because it basically makes it seem like the entire world revolves around us. Mm-hmm. And you could be forgiven for believing that because on the web, it does. Literally, every white website you go to is custom made for you. So that was not always thus, right? The early web was just a place where a lot of weirdos were just putting up their, here are my opinions about Star Trek. Here is this weird <laughs> animation. Here is a bunch of things about badgers. just like saying badger, badger, badger over and over. Like yeah. It was sort of like, if you think about like the creativity you see in a place like TikTok, where people, some people are there being very money-minded and trying to do a business, but some people are just putting up weird, fun shit, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's the early web. It's just, here is... So, yeah, there's a different difference there, and there was a, a gold rush that came where people started realizing, okay, they can make a lot of money off of this by taking what was, like, the open web, something like an MP3, which is a format for music, that isn't owned. It's, yeah. it's free. Anyone can use it. And changing that into a format that's proprietary. So, oh, if you want to play that movie, you have to do it on this browser and this website using our technology. And if you try to copy it, God help you, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was how we moved into the web we have now, which is much more capitalistic, much more predatory. And it's basically every way we can possibly make a buck off of you, we will. The early web was more like, hey, look at this new toy. What can we do with it? Yeah. The early web was also just like a place where you could play, I guess, play. I mean, I'm using play in sort of a, a broad sense, but like you're playing without consequence. Like you said, there's yeah. no, aside from there also not being any logins back then, there was no tracking really. Like yeah. Google Analytics wasn't a thing. If you, the way that you found other people were visiting is if you had a hit counter on your website oh, or if you had a counters. guest book hit counters. Oh, and someone God. signed it, you know, like you didn't yeah. know. There wasn't all this sort of stuff to sort of track your movement across the web and like, oh, you went here. Where did you go next? Where did you go after that? What purchases did you make? Like none of that existed. And you could really the thing that I it's funny, like I tell this to my I have two goddaughters are nine and 12. And like I tell them that, like, you know, back when there was Windows 95, how when you logged off, there would be this message that will pop up that would say it is now safe to turn off your computer. Like there was a time when you could turn things off. Yeah. Like TV <laughs> had a stop time. Yes. At 1230, those test bars came on and you went to bed. Like there was nothing else to like <laughs> to sort of keep you up. You know what I mean? So it's so different now with everything being so tracked and analyzed and and stored and, you know, sold to other companies. Like it's just the web now is so different. And I think about that a lot in the context of quote unquote creating content. Yeah. You've been writing 
you've been making podcasts, you've done web series, et cetera. And I, I do want to talk about your podcast work, but you've been creating content online for over 20 years. How have you seen content online change during that time? So there's, there's a dichotomy there because the original sin of the open web, and Anil Dash talks about this in a talk called The Web We Lost. Mm-hmm. The original sin of the open web was that it was very, very privileged. If you did not know how to code at some level, it was very difficult to create content on the web. And what Facebook did, what Twitter did, what all these walled gardens did was make it easy to create content, right? Make it easy to put it on the web. Mm-hmm. And in exchange for that ease, we gave up data. The plus side of that was a lot of poor people got to make content. Like, <laughs> I, I already say it. Like, if you look at Vine, right, back in the day, Vine, before it collapsed, there was some amazing BIPOC content going up there, especially BIPOC humor. There was mm-hmm. so much, like, I would say straight up innovative work being done. And some of that has bled over into TikTok as well. But there are people who are creating content today who could not have made it otherwise because of Facebook, because of, of Vine, because of Twitter, because of TikTok, right? But the trade-off was, oh, now we have your data. Now we can track you everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it had to be that way. I think that governments could have stepped up to say, we think it's important that people who aren't privileged are able to make content. I think that different business models could have arrived that were better than that. But I don't think any of that was likely because we live in America. We live in capitalist country in a largely capitalist world where mm-hmm. people are incentivized, are told from a very early age, your highest value, the best thing you can do is make money. So the likelihood of having a web that is sort of built on the idea of letting let as many people responsibly make content as possible is not likely, right? Like this is not going to happen. So the way I've seen content change over time since I was started doing it is is way way easier than it ever, 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 ever was. Mm-hmm. But it has come at the cost of data. It has come at the cost of misinformation. And I will always, if I have to choose between a privileged few being able to create content and a whole lot of people being able to create content, I'm always going to choose a whole lot of people, even if it means the odds of disinformation going up. Because the fact of the matter is, the odds of disinformation don't go away if it's only a privileged few. In fact, depending on who those privileged few are, the odds of disinformation skyrocket. Mm-hmm. I, mean? So, I mean, I think we're definitely seeing that now with Twitter's recent change in ownership. Yeah. So that's a lot of why I talk about what I talk about now is this idea of I want people to understand what that balance is like and that it is good for lots of people to be able to create content. We don't know how to deal with that yet. Mm -hmm. Somebody was pointing out, so people talk about these unprecedented times and I always get kind of like, really? When people say that, because I'm like, yo, we've (laughs) had, there's a lot of people who've been living in precarity for a long time now. It's it's just like more middle-class people, more more white people are having to deal with like black people shit than ever before. And they're calling that unprecedented. I'm just mm-hmm. that. Um, like, you know, poverty and health problems and all these other things. It's like other people have had to deal with that before. But what right. I do think is unprecedented is two things. One, we have never, ever, ever, ever had 8 billion people on the same planet at the same time. Just hasn't happened. And two, they have never all been able to talk to each other at exactly the same time. We've never had many to many communications at scale instantly ever, like ever, ever, ever. That's never happened. So why should we be good at it? 
why would we expect we'd be even remotely good at it, especially if it's all being done through a capitalist lens, right? So it makes sense that we're fucking this up, right? But I think we need to focus up on how do we do this because I think it's important to preserve our access to each other. It's, I think it's critical, but I don't think we know how to do it yet. I mean, you mentioned something here just about, you know, the fact that we're dealing. I mean, I think the unprecedented part of what you're saying is just that, yeah, we don't really have those mechanisms available, even though communication now is easier than it has ever been just because of the technology. Like you can text, you can FaceTime, you've got WhatsApp and Instagram and all these sorts of things. But I don't know if the tools are necessarily facilitating the conversations in that way. Well, and I think it's really, really important to understand that the societal work has to come first. There's a great Twitter thread where someone talks about how this comes from actually an episode of the Orville, I guess, but there's a character The Orville is kind of like a Star Trek kind of show. Mm -hmm. So there's this character from an impoverished planet that asks the Federation, basically the, the, the spaceship, Hey, why don't you give us all replicators a replicator for those who aren't geeks like me, basically just a device that can just make anything you want. It just out of thin air, it just makes it like so food, clothing, whatever, it just makes it. Why don't you give us all replicators and then we can be as peaceful as you are. And the guy from the Orville explains that's that you got it backwards. The only reason we were able to develop the replicator technology in the first place was because we got over our shit. We were able to actually support each other to the point where we could coordinate to make something like that. And the guy goes on, the Twitter thread goes on to say, look, if we had replicator technology, if Twitter developed replicator technology, they would license it. They would make it so that uh, if you don't like keep paying your subscription fee, right, or give us data for advertisers, you could it would, it would, it would stop working, right? And different companies and then different countries would be like, or different political groups would be like, oh, replicated meat is ruining the meat industry. So we're going to say that replicated meat is bad and evil. And I'm going to run on that platform so I can get votes. Like he basically breaks down all the ways that the greatest technology in the world can be ruined by people. People have to get their shit together first. Then yeah. you can do good things with the technology. So yeah, we're going to keep using social media for shit because we, the people, have our have shit that we need to work out. We have trauma that we need to get over. We have all these sort of agreements we need to actually make with each other before we can even have a hope of actually using the technology in a positive way. Amen to that. Amen to all of that. Society has to work through their own biases and other shit before we can really start to have the technology serve us, hopefully in a, in a positive and, and constructive way, just to kind of bring it back to, you know, the earlier conversation we had around content, like to you, what does content strategy mean now? I mean, you've been a content strategist since before the title really came to be in this industry. And like I said, you've been creating content online in many different media for over 20 years. Like, and across several different fields, I should mention. To you, what does content strategy mean now? Organizational change. I was talking to a friend of mine who's doing some work with the G20. Mm-hmm. And long story short, she was talking to someone about trying to get more buy-in around content strategy with her stakeholders. And the person was like, don't call it content strategy. Call it what it is. It's organizational change. And even from day one, So like 10 years ago, I get my first official job. I'd been doing content strategy before, but I get my first official job where it says content strategy on my business card. Within a week, 
I turned to one of the strategists at the organization and I asked them, how much of our job is just doing interventions? And he says, (laughs) 90%. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. So yeah, I do content audits and I do this and that and I build content models and blah, 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 and make these artifacts. But at the end of the day, none of that means anything if I can't work out your political problems, your organizational problems, your biases, like all of the stuff. Half the examples in my book come from real world experience I had working with clients, which is why I think it's valid, frankly. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm glad I went through those experiences because I don't think my book would make any sense otherwise. But yeah, like it is people stuff. It's messy people stuff. And content strategists are at a great, in a great position to witness and document the outcomes of the messy people stuff. Because if you have no taxonomy, if you like have like uh, paths that don't make any sense, right? If your language only makes sense to certain people in the organization with certain seats of power. Like all of that is just the outcome of people stuff, messy people stuff. And so when you're really, I've never seen a content strategy work lest there be organizational change that preceded it. If you did not fix the organizational problem, the best content model in the world isn't going to help. I mean, the same thing with UX, same thing with dev. I think content strategists in particular get exposed to that first Right. If they are kind of looking because they're kind of the first ones under the hood looking at, OK, let's take a look at your content inventory. Let's take a look at your, your let's do an audit and you get to see those outcomes firsthand. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, so I think call it what it is. Organizational change. I spend 10 percent of my time as a content strategist creating these like artifacts, like from an effort perspective. I spend 90 percent of that effort trying to convince you that it works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I've seen is a shift toward understanding that, or at least personally what I see, like, cause that, and that's the other thing I like, I don't feel comfortable commenting on content strategy, like per se, because I haven't worked with a client in three years. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, don't ask me, ask the people on the ground what content strategy is. But my observation is that it is really, it is becoming clearer and clearer that content strategy is in fact organizational change and to varying degrees, absolutely UX, absolutely design, absolutely. Like there is no service industry in terms of like, I am building you a website or I'm helping your organization do X, Y, or Z. That is not on some fundamental level organizational change. So that that's the the shift I've seen. Now, you know, as I mentioned, you've done a lot, you know, in your career, you know, events, web series, talked about podcasting. I have to ask about the podcast because you've done several. You've been host. You've had your own podcast. When did you really start getting into into doing that? So I was doing podcasts before. It was cool. Do you remember Odeo? I remember. I was on Odeo. I remember. Jack Dorsey was up to before Twitter. I do. I do. I remember Odeo in like 2004, 2005. Yeah. So my friend, Kevin Smokler, wonderful author and filmmaker in his own right, convinced me or we partnered up. He's my, he's, my, he's my best friend. So we partnered up and said, hey, let's do a podcast about movies. We're just going to talk about because we're both huge movie movie buffs. And we called it Talking Pictures. And our first episodes, I believe, were posted on Odeo. Uh, and then we moved on to other things later. But so, I was, so that's back in like 2006 or so. Mm-hmm. I started doing podcasting. And I've never done it with any sense of like – and again, this is that that arc. Like – the early days of the web, you just did stuff because it was fun. You weren't trying to get followers. You weren't trying to make mm-hmm. it. You were just, hey, I can post something and like 
hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of people could potentially see it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And you have to understand that was new. The only way to hear your voice on the air was to go on the actual radio. <laughs> right? there, was no, <laughs> there was no like, like, so the, so the idea of just putting something online and having other people witness it that you will never meet was just a totally new thing. And it didn't matter if it was five people or 5,000 people. Like that just wasn't as much a thing as it is now. It's like, well, if I don't get a million followers, what's the point? So yeah. And then many years later, I did the cognitive bias podcast because basically I had been reading up on cognitive biases ever since I saw a talk by Iris Bonnet called gender equality by design. And it blew my mind. And she was the first one to start connecting the dots for me around here's this bias and here's this impact and here's how design influences that. And it lit a fire under me to learn about cognitive bias. So I literally went to the rational wiki page of cognitive biases and just looked at one bias a day. I would pick a bias and I'd learn about it. Next day, go on to the next one. And this turned me into the guy who wouldn't shut up about cognitive bias. So my friends, and I remember one one friend in particular who worked for TED at the time, I uh, was like, you should do a podcast. And when someone who works for Ted is like, you should do a podcast, you listen. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. At the time I had a job that I only worked four days a week. So I had Fridays off. And so I was like, I've already studied all these biases. What if I just do a podcast where I talk about one bias? I st- and I just would kind of reacquaint myself with a bias, make some show notes, and then just turn on the mic and talk. And I could wrap that up within an hour. So and one hour every Friday was super manageable. So yeah, I, I just started posting it. And again, I wasn't with the intent of like, oh, I'm going to grow this big audience. It was more like, hey, this would be a fun thing to do. And I think, and people tell me they're interested. So yeah, and then it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And it was never like, I never got to the point where I was like, oh, getting advertisers or anything like that. Because frankly, I'm too lazy. Like I just don't have <laughs> the, the energy to, like I don't care about that enough to build a whole business around it. But I care enough to do this thing. And it led to all these other things like giving the talk in Copenhagen, like writing the book. Like my experience from a career perspective is that that's how it works. Like you may have a plan, you may not have a plan, but if you are diligent and lucky, <laughs> and I stress the lucky because I don't want people to think, oh, some people are just better than others. And the, really, yeah. the ones who have all the hustle get the good shit. No, the ones who have the hustle are persistent and that helps if the lucky thing happens but there's also luck. There's privilege. Like I was born lower middle class to a mother who really cared about education, which put me in a better position to be able to get that education and so on and so forth. There are people in my life who have cared about me and supported me. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't something I planned and, and happened because I'm so freaking awesome. No, it happened because of just all of the chaos theory things that happen in life. Yeah. But when those things happened, I was prepared to say, yeah, I will do a hundred episodes of this podcast, right? I will go out and give all these talks, right? I'll like, I think it's a mix of those two things. I, I always stress that because I don't want people, I don't want people to forget about privilege. I don't want people to forget about the social structures that limit our opportunities. And I really, really, really don't want people to fall into the trap of thinking some people are just better than others. That's one of the most horrific doctrines Mm -hmm. in the history of the world. I'm not even a little bit overstating it. So I always stress that, hey, I'm not here because I'm so fucking awesome. I'm here because I tried really hard. I cared about these things. I was passionate about these things. And I did it in a context where 
very fortunately, these other people were in my life. And I was born in this particular place at this particular time. Yeah. There were a lot of things that I didn't have control over that played in my favor, as well as some that played against me. But it isn't just don't think that some people are better than others. Like That's the thing I really try to avoid when I'm telling my story. Yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned that just kind of like in the context of of like the work that you do and how that places you with where you are now. Like it's a combination of things. Like this wasn't something that was just handed to you. And I mean, you know, we're talking about privilege too, but also it's kind of by privilege. I don't want to say by privilege, but it's also by fact of like just being early, like being around at the time that this technology started to pop off in a way where people could really take advantage of it and make livelihoods out of it. Like, I think about some of the early projects that I've done, like the Black Weblog Awards. And uh, in 2015, I did like a whole podcast about tea for a year. <laughs> I just did oh, like wow. short, like short bursts, less than five minute episodes about tea, one episode a day. I call it the year oh. of tea because I only did it for a year. And like, I could do that now. Maybe people would pay attention to it. Maybe they wouldn't. I, I hate the fact that content creation is now under not just the filter of algorithms, but also the lens of like how many likes or shares or, or whatever yeah. it gets. Like the early web was just so much about doing things because you could do them yeah, and no one else was doing them. So you're like, well, I'll just do it. And maybe it becomes something, maybe it doesn't, but I'm also not doing it for it to try to become something like, yeah, it's I don't know. It's hard, I think, to explain in the current context, because so much of what's done now is is just filtered through engagement. Yeah, it's, that, you know, as you kind of said earlier about, you know, fuck engagement. But like everything is like, well, are people paying attention to it? Who cares? Yeah. Are you doing it because you like it? You know, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and who is being helped? Because I think that's the other sad truth about the early web is. It wasn't particularly, I won't say exclusively, but it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't helping people, I think, necessarily mm-hmm. in the way that there's the potential for it to help people now. Like some of the early shit, like Ushahidi was awesome, where it was mm. like this tool for helping people know where to avoid violence during the Kenya elections of 2007. And it became this disaster relief tool, right? I think people, I wanted to see more of that out of the early web. I was perfectly happy to see us just kind of fuck around and do cool shit, but I also wanted to see us, and I think some of us were, and I think it got harder in some ways after the web got commoditized, but I want a web that where the metric isn't how many people are looking at my shit, but how many people am I helping? Mm-hmm. That's the web I want to see. That's the metric I want to see. Yeah, that's something with with Revision Path. I've certainly, I don't want to say I've come to terms with it over the years, because when I started this, it really was just... Honestly, as a, as a continuation of a project that I did back in 2005, like I started the Black Web Blog Awards in 05. In 06, we had a category that was best blog design. I was a, a blog designer at the time, like designing movable type and WordPress mm-hmm. sites. I was also working at AT&T at the time. I had other friends who were designers that were black designers. And I just thought we weren't getting any recognition in the industry. Like, the magazines at the time, the conferences, like we were not there, period. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something about it, but couldn't do it then. It took me seven years until I started Revision Path. And now I've done that for 10 years, you know, as of this year. And I'll still like run across people that think like, oh, this was just a fluke. Like, oh, yeah, you know, you just, you know, an overnight success. Yeah, overnight since 2005. Yeah. Like, come on, you know. So, but I, and I think about it in that context of like, is Revision Path 
ever going to be as popular as say like design matters or 99% invisible. And I don't even look at the success of the show through that lens. Mm -hmm. Like I I don't, I mean, I could, and then I would be like, Oh, the show is failing. Like, I don't think about it that way because we haven't reached that level of say audience or like general, I would say design community know-how or knowledge or penetration, largely because people honestly, they see the word black and they're like, eh, it's not for me. I'm not interested, Mm -hmm. whatever which I'm fine with, but like the impact that the show is having on the design industry. I know that there are teachers that teach the class in their schools. So like there's a new generation of designers learning about current black designers that like those current black designers I talked to never encountered other black designers. So like I'm helping to change the conversation around who can be a designer, the visibility of what a designer looks like, where a designer can be, what a designer can do, et cetera. So I have to look at it in that sort of lens of like, this is the impact that it's having and less about whether or not it's, you know, getting a hundred thousand downloads or something like that. We never know truly the impact we have. And like, you're reminding me of this like little Twitter contest that happened at least a decade ago where Ashton Kutcher and Will uh, Wheaton basically said, okay, we're each going to ask like our followers to do some kind of charitable thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the way it broke down was, I don't know, like Kucher had a much, much bigger reach than Wheaton, but Wheaton, like a, a higher percentage of his followers actually did the thing. Mm-hmm. So it may have been technically more of Kucher, like a larger number of, of people did the thing from Kucher's clan. But if you did it by percentages, like maybe 50%, of Ashton's people did something, whereas like 90% of Wheaton's people did something. And it's sort of like, if I had to pick, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. I feel like maybe I would rather be Will Wheaton in that in that scenario because the, the people who are following you like mean it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's this tighter relationship. And increasingly, I find myself defining success through relationship rather than through numbers, right? Like I'm working mm-hmm. on this movie right now and I've decided the number one metric for success for the film isn't going to be how much money it makes. It's going to be what are the relationships like during and after? Mm. Like, do I get to meet more people and form these new relationships? Do I get to strengthen existing ones? Because a that's people I can work with again. Right. And that, and most of the experience of making the movie is going to be working with people. So why would I not want that to be pleasant? But B like, I would much rather have that than, I'd much rather have that and have the movie just kind of fizzle versus have the movie be a huge success and we all hate each other when it's over. Like that is not interesting to me. Yeah. Just where I'm at now, that's just not, not interesting to me. So yeah, like I feel you in terms of trying to not fall into the trap of it just being about the numbers and comparing yourself to other podcasts. I mean, my latest podcast, I've done two seasons of my new podcast called Lately I've Been Thinking About, and it's nobody. <laughs> like five people have heard it. The people who've heard it love it, but it's sort of like compared to so even compared to myself, right? It's a failure in in the sense of I don't think it has nearly as much as many plays as my cognitive bias podcast, but I don't care. Yeah. And I actually am in some ways more proud of it because it's the first podcast I've done that's actually accessible, right? I've got a transcript now and I paid for the transcript and I've got good, like there's certain things I'm doing as a podcaster that I think is better podcasting than what I did with the, the, the first one. So mm-hmm. to me, it's not as cut and dry as like, am I getting more likes than Joe Rogan? 
Right. I'm hoping to get to that. I mean, I don't want to say I'm hoping to get to that. I still am in the mind of like creating things just to make them. And if like, if it does well, it does well. If it flops, it flops. It doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad idea. Maybe it's bad timing. You know, like Mm -hmm. we did a literary, a design literary anthology. We started in 2019 called Recognize, where we wanted to sort of cultivate like BIPOC design voices, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Did that in 2019. I think it went pretty well. Pandemic happened in 2020. That pretty much killed it. So mm-hmm. we did one more year in 2020. I think I tried to do it in 2021 and it wasn't working. Like it did not, <laughs> it did not have the impact that I wanted it to have. I'm going to bring it back one day. I'm going to find a way mm-hmm. to, to do it again. Cause I still feel that it's, it's super important, especially as I start seeing more black designers and black creatives, like writing books and stuff. I still want to do that because there was a time not too long ago, I'd say maybe roughly about, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, maybe, maybe a little bit longer than that. But I feel like there were prominent design voices online, not necessarily authors, but like, you know, you have, you know, venues like a list apart. And mm-hmm. I remember when designer news used to be a thing before it be- turned into a graveyard, but like there used to be places where you could read writing about design. Mm-hmm. Like there was AIGA, had eye on design. I think there might have been a couple of others. Now you see things and they're mostly just glorified tutorials, which is not to say that's a bad thing, but like who's the next generation of design writers? Because the current mm-hmm. generation is either, I mean, you know, not to be morbid, but like they're either dying or mm-hmm. nobody's paying attention to them anymore. And who's going to be the next generation? that are going to be talking about the things that are important. Like, I feel like it's going to be us in our generation, like you, of course, with your book and the works that you're doing, you know, hopefully me with this podcast, but like there are more design voices out there that need to be cultivated. And I feel like it's going to mostly be designers of color that are the ones that do that. Mm-hmm. So how we bring back recognize in the future, I don't know. I'll have to noodle on it some more, but I still think it's important because it's just important. I still think it's it's something that needs to be out there. You know, did it do well the first time we did it? No, it's just a timing thing. I'll find a way to bring it back. Yeah, and I hope you do. And frankly, I think that the I would say women and people of color are going to be like the new design voices. And I think the new design, and I think they're, they're here. Sarah Walker Betcher, Eva Penzi Moog, Cheryl Kababa, mm-hmm. like all these folks are doing great work. But I think that the new design voices are also going to be political. Like I think that's the difference. I think that's oh yeah. I think I think it's going to be increasingly difficult to tell the difference between good design voices and political activists. I, I think mm. that is, and and frankly, there are periods in design history, like look at Bauhaus. Like there are periods in design history where that has been the norm. Where I mean, design has always been political, and it sometimes it's more more pronounced than others. But I think I hope we're entering into a time where it is this thin thin line between kind of activist voices and design voices, especially as we come into this period where we're really realizing racism is designed, sexism is designed, transphobia is designed, right? All this injustice is designed Mm -hmm. and can be undesigned. And social equality can be designed, right? Like people treating each, each other humanely can be designed as well. But that there's this, I don't know, like increasingly, maybe this is just the voices I'm listening to, but increasingly I'm seeing design discourse becoming more human and less technical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm definitely starting to see that as well. I mean, I look at like what I did for, I mean, I'm trying not to keep bringing it back to me, but (laughs) I'm seeing it with things like where are the black designers, which was kind of an offshoot of a talk I did in 2015 
Mitzi Oku ended up doing a conference around it for two years, starting in 2020. Now it's sort of grown out to be its own thing. They're partnering with agencies and stuff. So like I'm starting to see the byproducts and the effects of the work. And that to me is how I measure like the success of what I'm doing or like the impact that I'm having is that Mm -hmm. it's reverberating out into the industry in other ways. So if I do something and it doesn't go well, that doesn't necessarily mean that the idea was bad. Maybe it was just the execution or the format or the timing. Like there's, you know, again, with the way that the modern web is and everything being geared around algorithms and numbers and such, you know, just because something isn't seen doesn't mean that it's not in some ways a success. Yeah. Yeah. What keeps you motivated and inspired to keep going? Uh, a couple things. I mean, people mostly. I, you know, have a wonderful wife, wonderful son. I have wonderful friends, and just seeing them thrive or meet challenges helps. I think what also helps, frankly, is once you study things like cognitive bias in the human mind, you start to get a really great respect for uncertainty. And uncertainty is can be scary, but it can also be invigorating. And so what one thing that makes me hopeful about the future is that I am terrible at predicting the future and that in fact, everyone is terrible at predicting the future. Like that's just something we know Mm -hmm. (laughs) we've looked, people suck at it. (laughs) And I used to fancy myself a futurist until 2020. And then it was like, (laughs) Oh, it was adorable how much I think I could predict about the future. So now I'm like, Oh, something happens. Like, Ron DeSantis will do some ignorant shit in Florida and I'll be like, oh my God, we're all doomed and I'll feel my feelings, but then I'll remember, oh right, I have no fucking clue what's going to happen. I just, I don't. I really don't, mm-hmm. for better or worse. I cannot accurately predict a dystopia and I cannot accurately predict a utopia. All I can do is what I can do. And what I can do is I can go around and get people fired up about inclusive design, get people fired about about treating each other like humans. I can, I can, that that's something I can do. I can go make my art make my movies that I feel are going to have an impact and express these things. And that might even bring me some healing. I can treat my family. Well, I can support my friends. Those are the things I can do. What I can't do is predict the future. And that means I have just as much right to hope as I do to despair, right? I have equal access to both of those things because neither of them are accurate. (laughs) What advice would you give to someone out there that they're hearing your story, they're hearing about your work, and they sort of want to try to go into that direction, not necessarily following your footsteps, but they want to be a more active designer as it relates to the issues and the things that you're talking about. What advice would you give them? I would give them the advice that I give at the end of my, my newest talk, which is to say, sit down with a piece of paper and write down what you believe in at the level of, like for me, it's compassion creativity, curiosity, connection, open-mindedness, spirituality, right? I just write these things down. I literally, I have them in a Trello, like straight up there in a Trello. And I look at them from time to time, pretty regularly, actually. And I remind myself what I believe in. And when I have to make a decision, like a hard decision, I look at that and I say, well, which course of action is more compassionate? Which course of action favors creativity, right? And it's not always an even mix, right? Sometimes it'll be, okay, well, this decision would be more compassionate, but less creative or whatever, right? Like I have to about, but it, it gives me a framework for approaching the world, right? And it reminds me that it isn't all chaos, that there are things I can control. Because when you sit down and write down those values, that's you. You get to decide what you believe in. You may not get to decide how much you get paid. You may not get to decide how other people treat you, but you get to decide what you believe in and the degree to which you want to strive for those things. 
honestly, everything else I've done, aside from the just chaos of it all that I couldn't control, began from those things. I would say that's the best first step. And then after that, I mean, if you want to know what I did, what I did was I doubled down as much as I could on the things I was passionate about to the degree that I could. And I chipped away. I basically reached a point where rather than think about my day as here's my day job and here's the time I spend doing what I love and here's my like hobby or whatever, or my passion. Instead, I broke it down into how much of my time am I spending doing what I love? And there were times during my workday, I could in fact do 5% of that workday was doing something I love. Okay, maybe next year it's 10%. Maybe next year it's 15%. I chipped away, chipped away, chipped away until now I'm at the point where I'd say 90% of my day is spent doing things I love. And then there's laundry, right? Like, <laughs> so that, and that's a 20 year journey, by the way, at minimum. <laughs> so don't be disappointed if it doesn't happen in a week, right? But that, I'm speaking about it that abstractly because, like, I don't have a path. There is no, like, oh, yeah. Dave, that's who you follow if you want to become a podcaster slash speaker slash filmmaker slash workshop giver, I guess, author, right? Like that's a <laughs> thing, right? No, it's just a bunch of shit I do. And I love it and I've worked very hard at it, but like, no, there's no, I didn't sit down one day and say, oh, well, first I'm going to do a podcast and then that's going to get me some talks and then that's going to get me a book deal. No, I didn't, I didn't know any of that was going to happen. I just, I seized the opportunity when it did happen, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew I really care a lot about this. So I'm going to start talking about it. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what do you want the next chapter of your story to be? I mean, in terms of impact, it's like I said, I want people to treat each other better and anything I can do to make that happen. But concretely, I've got this movie I'm making. It's based on a very, uh, it's based on a true fact, which is that beneath Washington Square Park in Philadelphia, an urban park in Philly, there are buried the bodies of hundreds of enslaved people. And what if they came back one night as zombies, but they only ate white people? The movie is called White Meat. I have finished the screenplay. Uh, I did I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to. Interrupt. I, I, I want you to keep going. You completely have gagged me by talking about <laughs> the zombies and calling it white meat. <laughs> Oh my God. Continue, yeah. continue, please continue. Oh, no, no. So I, I did a table read in, in, in December with professional actors and an audience that killed. And I'm now uh, putting together a budget, maybe a pitch deck. So I'm moving forward with that. Like that is one of those, if it takes me until my dying day, I'm working on it kind of thing, but I'm hoping it'll only be like five years. So that's one piece. When I'm done that, I kind of maybe have another book in me because this new talk, it keeps getting longer. <laughs> And it's like, this might actually be a book or one man show. So I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm going to keep doing what I do. Like I'm going to keep going out and giving these talks and these workshops. But yeah, that's where I see my energies focused over the next few years is really doing what I do, you know, on the daily, but really, I really want to make this movie. Like that's, that's the, the number one creative priority for me right now. A zombie flick that kills. I like that. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? The one-stop shopping for me is daviddillonthomas.com. You can buy my book there. You can sign up for my mailing list. You can hire me to speak. All the good stuff is there. All right. Sounds good. David Dylan Thomas, it has been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I had a feeling that we were going to have a great conversation. We had, I think, a tremendous conversation. And I, I just want to thank you for the work that you've done, the work that you're continuing to do around not just 
helping us designers, people, et cetera, to uncover our biases, but also find ways to take that knowledge and then put it into action and to service to help make the world a better place. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the hard work you do with this podcast. Appreciate it. Big thanks to David Dylan Thomas, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about David and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on Instagram and on Twitter. You can just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify. You could follow us on Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Or you can leave a message on our hotline, a voicemail, at 626 603 0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.